1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Beautiful, mysterious woman pursued by gunmen. Sounds like a spy story. That's exactly what it is. If only I could find the word agent better. I've known what it is to feel lonely and helpless and to have the whole world against me. And those are things that no man or woman ought to feel. of obtaining a secret vital to your air defense. An enormously important secret is being taken out of this country by a foreign agent. There's a man leaving the country tonight with something. I'm just about to uh, convey some very vital information out of the country. Have you ever heard of the 39 steps? No, what's that, a pub? A uh, whoop on the derby in 1921. Mr. Jack Jones, humorist with Steve Donoghue, won a length at the odds of six to one. Am I right, sir? Right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am here today to talk Alfred Hitchcock. And to do so, I have Sean Whalen, Trey Hooks, and Blaine Teller. Am I right, sir? Oh, you are right, sir. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Very good. It's great to be here. So uh, Good. I'm, I'm, I'm a little... Uh... Suspicious of the Canadian in our midst this time, Paul. But other than that. <laughs> so if you don't get our obscure references, it's probably because you have not seen the movie that we're talking about, which is The 39 Steps, probably waiting for the sequel, The 40 Steps. Um, 
the 39 steps is a 1935 19 alfred hitchcock film uh and it was a movie that i saw in my high school film class that's the first time i ever saw it it was my introduction to the MacGuffin. it was also my introduction to alfred hitchcock's formula of the man you know the the innocent man's thrust into the uh, extraordinary circumstances and then put on the run which is one of his formula things that he's gone with on many films so I saw this movie and I'm just going to say my first impression of it, seeing it in a film class was I was very, very impressed by it and really liked it at that time. I had not seen it in many, many years until I watched it this week in order to prepare for today's show. And I'll keep my thoughts on my prep for today to myself. But again, on first viewing, I was very impressed with this. Uh, And on that note, I'll throw it out to you guys. What was your first viewing of this and what did you think initially? Sean, why don't you go first? So I hadn't seen this one before. And, uh, you know, I'm a big Hitchcock fan, I, I, but I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I've seen everything. I typically, if I see his name on it, so when we said we we're going to do this one, I'm like, oh, great. It's one that I haven't seen. I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. Um, there were points in time of it where it had elements of what um, some of my st- favorite Stephen King books have. And, and, and it's going to sound like an insult. It's not. There was like a, periods of a trudge where it's getting to know the character. And I, I thought where it's really well done, when it's really well done, you get through that period and you know the character so well that they, when they start doing really crazy things to them, you are really invested. And I thought this film did that really well. It had an interesting pace to it that it's one of those films, do not, if you're watching it and you're like hitting these points where you're like, ah, where is this going? Am I in? It's all for a purpose. And I, I think it's one of the things that worked really well for this film was the way that it built along the way, where it's a guy who I had no history with. I knew no, I didn't know the premise of the film. I just was watching it because we were doing it for this. And it was really refreshing to walk in and just be guided along to the story and found myself like partway through going, at first, I was like, oh, boy, I hope I'm going to like this one as we get through and then find myself pleasantly surprised on where the film takes me. Um, it's it's hard to do that because you're right. There's a formula there that you're mentioning with Hitchcock. But I felt that there was so much that was being done here that was fresh and different and interesting and atmospheric that um, I really got drawn into as the film went through. It was it was it was this was a fun viewing for me. All right. Next on my screen is Trace. So I'll throw it to you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I first saw it probably about um, five years ago. Um, I started a kind of a letterboxed um, guided viewing through a lot of the films of um, uh, the 30s. And, and my first impression was kind of what stuck with me um, this time, you know, you do see a lot of early proto um, Hitchcock here. I think it speaks to his strength of a di- as a director that um, it still feels um, fresh, even though, <clears throat> you know, you have that thing. I, I always go to um, early comedy films to where you watch something like a Laurel and Hardy and some people aren't as impressed as, some of us are because they've seen, you know, the 10th ripoff of that thing, right? 
um, mm-hmm. first. Um, it, it, here it still feels um, fresh. And I think something that Hitchcock and his um, screenwriter collaborators don't often get enough credit for in the um, person thrust in a strange circumstance is how authentic and real the reactions feel to those circumstances that they're thrown into. You know, um, you're a nice person and then you get punished for being a nice person, essentially. What do you say, Blaine? Uh, This is one I first saw not in university film studies class, but because of the university film studies classes. I took two of them. One we watched uh, Rear Window. Another we watched the North by Northwest. And one of the, the, my classmates was in there saying, oh, you know, this innocent man getting drawn in that why are we looking at this? This is nothing new. It's been done since the thirties. And he quoted the 39 steps as one. And he went on this rant about how it, it seems to be, you know, thematically similar and knocking it all off and yada, yada. And why didn't, why is the guy who directed 39 steps giving credit? And when he finished his tirade, the prof said that was also directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I was like, what? And he had no idea Hitchcock had been directing since the twenties. So, yeah, it, the themes emerged, but after that conversation, I figured, okay, if that's where it started, I should see that just because I was worried that when I saw too many of Hitchcock's later films, you know, the one that that did it for the first time, if he's improved on it, may not hit as well. Um, and I just found Hitchcock was a great director, so that's when I started getting this stuff and trying to watch all of it. But, yeah, I do find that this is one I I wouldn't have... Or I didn't need to worry like I did about this not landing because I'd I'd seen it. Because even though this is really where his, his trope of the innocent man getting drawn in, this is where it hits full scale. He, so yeah, he's he's changed it and tweaked it and done other things with it later, but his early works are not substandard in this, right? He he was already delivering a good film with that premise. He's just going to do variations later. I agree. I, and, and I don't think the fact that he develops the formula and as far as I know, this is the beginning of the formula. I don't know if any of his earlier films have this because I haven't seen every Hitchcock film as we've talked about. And I'm looking forward to getting through as many of them as we can. Uh, some of them revisiting like this one and some of them that I'll have never seen before. But this is, for me, the earliest one that I'm familiar with with this particular formula. But I think he's always thrown enough of a tweak onto the formula that it doesn't feel like you're just watching a remake of the same film. It, you know, it, it does feel unique in its own way. And I think some of that goes to what Sean was saying about character development. I think a lot of the characters do have their own personalities and a lot of the characters in these movies are fairly, uh, significant actors, uh, who can, who can let their personality take over. I mean, you, you mentioned North by Northwest, uh, you know, Cary Grant's a pretty good actor and he's got a pretty strong personality. Mm-hmm. So so when you, you take it, you know, you, you you you're comparing him to Mr. Chips here in, in the 39 steps. It's it's two different people. Uh, so I think that there's something to be said for that, that, you know, the, the character is is big. Yeah, you can take the formula. You know, before we started recording this episode, we were talking about the formulaic nature of some uh, superhero movies. And to me, this is just an example of how you can have a formula and do things differently enough so that it's still entertaining over and over again in its own way. 
uh, as opposed to, well, I've seen that. I don't need to see it again. Uh, and, and part of that, I think, is also Hitchcock was always morphing himself and, and trying to look for ways to improve himself. I don't think he, he ever just sat still and said, this is good enough. Um, so so I think a lot of that is there. Uh, I think, you know, you, you can see in this movie, you know, when you consider that it's 1935, that he's developing a lot of the ways of shifting still from the silent movies to the sound movies. Mm-hmm. And there's certain scenes like the chase scene where the police are after, uh, you know, uh, I also I can't remember our hero's name, uh, Richard Haney. Uh, when, when the police are after him and he's, you know, ahead of them and, and he's, they're going through like a, a stream and different things. And you could see where that was silent film esque, uh, and, and you know even the, the the theme music in the background sounded a little formulaic on, but then he develops things where there's you know the personalities are coming out and there's different things with, uh you know different cuts he makes and different shots that he took, that you can see you know he he was helping to develop this as an art form, uh and and I think that's that's huge so, I'm gonna say. Before we even start getting more into it, though, I think this movie has greater appeal for someone who is a fan of the movies. And this has been the case on a lot of the earlier movies that we've covered that I feel like, uh, you know, if if you're somebody who is into film history and if you're someone who likes to see how a director did things, uh, I think this movie has an even greater appeal than its surface level. That said... The surface level is what I was really watching this on when I was 17 years old or 16 years old or whatever I was the first time I saw it, because I didn't have that same understanding of filmmaking that I do now. Not that I'm an expert, but I'm definitely a student of it who's been you know, watching it for years and years and years. So I, I hope I've learned something. Uh, so but, you know, on the surface level, I enjoyed it. And then watching it now, I enjoyed it. My one disappointment, and I'm going to give put that right up front, is that. The only versions I was able to find were pan and scan. Uh, I was not able to find a letterbox of this. And I think that's always going to hurt you on a Hitchcock film because I think he used the whole screen and the whole camera when he took things. So when you're seeing a, uh, what is it, four by three version of it, you're not seeing his whole vision. And you might be missing, you know, this is the movie that the teacher taught me uh you know, he showed slides from the movie and, and you'd see, oh, he's showing this person at this angle, this person at that angle to to establish dominance and this kind of thing. So Hitchcock had that in his repertoire all along. So if you're looking at it in four by three, you're going to lose some of that. Not much because he was filming in the British standard of the time, which is one point three seven to one. I did not know that. So this was a four by three film in the original release. Okay, so then I didn't miss anything, and I was concerned that I was missing something. Now I'm going to have to watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned something interesting, and and I don't want to lose my thought on this one. There's there was a few minor nitpicks I had in the film and, and they're nitpicks. And it really is more of a compliment to the film itself that the nitpicks were things because I was getting so invested in it. But the key you mentioned, like almost a Keystone Cops kind of sequence when he was escaping the police. And the few times that that happened, like how he burst out of the window, I'm like sitting here, no, don't go here with this because this has been so like realistic and captivating. I'm like, don't make it that he can get away that easily. (laughs) 
And it was little things. There was a couple little things like that that I didn't want there because I had become so invested. And that's probably the most sincere compliment I can give the film is the journey along the way. I mentioned the trudge earlier. And one of the reasons why I say it as a trudge, you got to introduce a normal for the character, right? Where you get kind of like a baseline as far as who this person is. And what I loved about the lead, and it's where you're talking, where, where we're talking about that this isn't formula. The thing that I really like about the lead is he's a handsome man, but he's a human man. Like, it's not like he's, everybody loves him. He's great. There's points in time where he's a jerk. <laughs> and I, I mean, and I really like that during the film because um, he's got kind of this layer about him where you get the handsomeness, you get the danger. You know, when he's when he encounters the husband and wife, you see that aspect of him. But it's a multi-layered character. And I think it's what keeps him fresh. You mentioned North by Northwest. It's a different character than that film. And I love that you can, like, look at these two films together and go, yes, this is a Hitchcock formula. But Cary Grant's character in North by Northwest versus this character are very different characters. The journey that they're going on, while you can kind of put it into that formula, is a very different journey. And it's and it's the twists and turns along the way that pull you through the film that make you go, like, you're the fish on the hook then. And oh, I- Anything that got nitpicky for me in the film and I'm minor things like the one I mentioned, the bursting through the window kind of thing. I'm like, no, not a Keystone Cop moment here. I don't need it because it's so good. Um, I liked that the nitpicks were things that was me was me being protective of the journey that I was going on with the character. I, I love the fact that until she overhears the fake cops at the um, end. Pamela tries to turn him in at every single step. Any movie today, when he busts into the train car, she would play along with it. But I just love that right from the jump, she's like, yeah, no, I don't know who this guy is. He's the murderer you're looking for. Take him away. Yeah, he he broke the formula that didn't even exist yet. (laughs) And I like that because that's where it felt realistic to me. I was like sitting here like, yes. And I get, and then you get where she feels bad because you find out that everything that you thought that this lunatic man was saying was false is now all of a sudden true. And you're faced with that and you've got to view him with fresh eyes. It was really intriguing. Well, and where I thought she gave Madeline Carroll gave a great performance is the danger that she's in changes at that point Mm -hmm. but she's still in danger now she's now she's aware that she's in the same danger that he's in yeah yeah her perception of her enemies shifts but she is still in jeopardy she just realizes oh i i teamed up with the wrong side Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and but but her her reaction is very believable you know, this guy comes in here, the, you know, the, the police are the authority figure. You know, your, your natural inclination, you know, except in modern days where people have demonized the police to some extent. But your natural inclination is the police are the authority and you believe what they're doing and you believe that what they're doing is right. Um, 
So somebody comes in and says, the police are after me for murder. Protect me. You're thinking, screw you. Why would I do that? You know, if they're after you for murder, you probably killed somebody. Why, Why would I trust you? above these authority figures who have been presented to me. And then, you know, it's turned around. You find out that either the police are, you know, in this movie, either they're in on it or they're misguided, one or the other. But either way, the police are wrong. You know, yeah. so so that that's a, a very good aspect of the movie because her motivation is believable. Exactly. It And she's actually a strong character. She's got agency. She is doing what she can to fix her life. And if the audience members sit down and go, well, what information does she have in front of her? Her choices are completely reasonable. The audience is in on it. We know that this guy's innocent. But most characters in the movie don't. Not even like it when he goes to the police and he spells it all out. He tries to trust them. He thinks, okay, now I've got enough proof. I've got the story. And then more police officers burst through. He's like, okay, yeah, thank you. Finally, you think I enjoyed sitting here with a killer? (laughs) realizes yeah he's not convincing anybody because the truth is so ludicrous and yeah, that, and that, that is the, the thing the truth is ludicrous well it's the truth is ludicrous and i i alluded to it in the beginning and i i want to be very clear i'm not when i say this i'm not pr- promoting bigotry in any shape or form but there's a really subtle um prejudice against him throughout the film because he's Canadian that instantly makes him an outsider. And I really like that it's there, but it's very subtle. Well, art, you know, imitates life, you know, as we all say, and then to the point of you're not promoting that, well, you should see, like, look how wrong that is and what it, how it really affects the outcome. We all know certain elements of it. And this guy is being, that that is a major factor against him in the film. I actually really loved in 35 that he was exploring that. <laughs> like sitting here, wow, that's pretty advanced that we're throwing this in there. It was an intriguing little piece. Um it, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed was when we mentioned the uh the police chief or whatever, um, the fact that he was mentioning that the person you're accusing is my friend. And if you took a look at the social parties that they're having together. You know, that that whole social circle that they're running into, you can see there's another layer of if I believe you. My world's imploding here. You know, I mean, this is this is my social life. I mean, look at the parties they're hanging out with. I mean, this is these are people that I see all the time. You're going to tell me now that this guy is a spy and he's doing this and you think I'm like buying into that because he starts going after that friend of his and he's got and it's a it's a real interesting ethical layer where he we all know he should. And we're like, listen, I don't care if he's your friend or not. You should still be investigating this. But yet you get the human side of how can I I'm going to insult this guy and that will that will change my world. And, and you're like, wow, this is deep. Um, it does explore some interesting ethics of people in subtle ways. And I like that subtlety of it because I feel that's more human and more interesting than we're going to go over the top with it. So it's smacking you in the face, which feels more awkward. It doesn't feel organic. This felt like a thriving world versus something that was going too over the top. And it's when it did go over the top, 
in those few little nitpicks, I didn't want it to because it felt like I was hanging out. And I liked that. Yeah, well, it's like um, Professor Jordan's wife. My read is that Professor Jordan was not leading a secret life from his family. She completely knew and was complicit in everything that he was a part of. And you you, you think that maybe she is like in the dark and that somehow she's going to be his, you know, his his ticket out of this somehow. And she's not, which, I, you know, we, we talk we've talked about, again, the formula and all of that. It's like you you look at the formula that eventually really developed from this and he subverts a lot of the, the thoughts that you'd have from that, which is just terrific. Um there's also the aspect of it that I, I, I've mentioned in the past that a lot of these earlier movies uh, seem to have built on you know what came before them. And, and a lot of the silent films that I've seen, and I haven't seen that many, but uh, to be fair, but the ones I've seen, it seems like they present a character to you that fits within a certain mold and you're supposed to accept, okay, that's who this is. And when they first went to the talkies and as they were developing, I think there was still a lot of that cinematic language that went into these films. Whereas this one, I feel like it's Hitchcock showing us, no, I'm going to develop the characters and I'm going to make them a little different than what you think they might be. And I'm going to use the fact that there's dialogue, not just for exposition, but for development. And and I really think, you know, we're seeing here the advancement of the storytelling narrative, uh, you know, the, the methods of making that storytelling nar- narrative available to the viewer. So, again, that's one of the reasons why I feel this movie is superior for people who have an interest in looking at it from that level as well. You can look at it very surfacey. You do not have to dive into it because it's a fun story. Well, fun in its own way. Uh, okay. You know, just to watch. It's an entertaining story. That's probably a better way to say it. But if you have any interest in, you know, trying to see the the cinematic language of it, I think it gives you a whole nother layer to enjoy this movie on. It does. And it does it by avoiding problems that would be rampant in the 1970s and 80s detective shows. I'm, I'm a fan of the genre. I've got so many complete series on DVD. But I'm going to interrupt you there for a second, Blaine, just to say, uh, I can tell you Blaine has has already gotten his two year old daughter addicted on Columbo. So, yeah. OK, now, now go ahead and make your point. Um, but yeah, a lot of the the more weekly written episodes, the characters other than your detective and the killers are more like props. It's like their existence is only to provide either clues or red herrings. And that's it. And there's. There's no need for them to exist outside the story. Right? They, they are props in the detective story, whereas the characters here, you feel like they have lives. Like You feel like Pamela's life is being interrupted. We don't know what that is, but just her choice is like, no, I want no part of this. She's impatient to get out of it. And you know, the police officer, we understand, yes, that there's that social aspect to it. The farmer and his wife, right? even though the farmer's wife chooses to trust him, we believe that they have you know, like they've got fully realized lives. We understand a lot about what motivates it. And part of that is because Hitchcock's goal in this was to make each scene like an episode. So he wanted little standalone stories with every new person that Hanny encountered. And he wanted it to, he said he was willing to bend the laws of plausibility here for the emotion 
to keep it going and going and going. So he escapes one thing and immediately gets swept up in the Salvation Army parade and then gets mistaken for the speaker at a political galley and then goes to make sure Hannay has no downtime at any point. He's constantly on the run and he's constantly moving from A to B. The farmer and his wife sequence was brilliant. And what I really loved about that was the casting, the storytelling, the characterization. I mean, if you to the point, Paul, you could watch this very surface level. But if you're really watching this and you're paying attention to a scene like that, you you cast the farmer as this insecure husband. And I mean, this is stuff that is done very subtly. Um, He's older. Um, he treats her poorly because of his insecurities, right? It's it's this need to be dominant and things like that. You you get that. But this isn't like explicit. It's stuff you just see through the scenes as you're watching it. Now, all of a sudden, he's this guy who's like trying to get money anywhere he can, you know, easily, you know, this guy, this hand, this strange man shows up at the doorstep. He kind of wants nothing to do with him until the fact that he's offering him money. And he's like, ah, you can stay here the night if, you know, you're willing to pay. And it's clear like he's, you know, willing to do that. They they have this guy sleeping in the cupboard and um, he's wary of him when he sees conversations with his wife. And it's not that he doesn't trust his wife. It's that he doesn't trust himself. He's suspicious that like this guy's handsome and that she's beautiful and that she's going to be taken by him when that's not really what's going on. I mean, maybe she's intrigued by, you know, the fact that he's handsome and something like that. Sure. But in the end, all she's really doing is listening to his plight and making a judgment call as far as whether or not am I going to try to help this other human being who's asking for help? She's actually a good person. And that's about it to her. Um. When, when he's watching her in the window, like and watching them, what he thinks is going on is not what's going on. And we know it as the viewer. And it's interesting to be able to look at him as a character in that moment and see layers to him. Not a lot of films do that because they're supporting characters. I mean, and when I say supporting, I mean, that's a such a short sequence. But for creating atmosphere on a journey the the fa- the fact that he fleshes those things out are what made this journey interesting for me it was every set piece that you went to was fully realized there was nothing that was there that was like flat cardboard it was all three dimensional and you felt like you were you were in a living thriving world because you think of our most simple set piece was his apartment in the beginning as he goes out into the world now he's thrust into this like living, thriving world, and that's where the movie really opens up. And you know, you see him being chased, and you see you know, pe- you know police on the hill. You see him with this family. Um, it was that part was just really intriguing, and for a director to be doing that, this is a 35 film with its layers of what he was doing in cinema. It's like wow. Um, there was the he all he could ever do at this point in time you could redo this same formula over and over again or play around with different set pieces and make unique stories which is what he did and i love that i watched this one and go this is not at all north by northwest um yet i see elements of the formula and this is how you do it when we talked to we were like you said we were talking about fatigue going into this this is how you take a formula and do it in such a way that you can keep it fresh um because i i that part I mean, when I can go gushing over the husband and wife sequence, that should be something that's a passing 
element of the story. Instead, I was captivated by everything from when he walked in to when he's leaving and he, and she's giving him a coat. <laughs> that, that plays so much importance later in the film. Um, it was it just really brilliantly done. There's, there's so much about that, what you're saying, that I, I'm totally on board with. And, and the thoughts are racing through my mind and I want to try and get some of them out before I forget <laughs> them. Uh, but first of all, yeah, that farmer's, uh, the farmer and his wife feel like fully realized characters, even though they're only, I don't know how much screen time they have, five minutes, whatever it is. Uh, and, and it, you know, you, you create the backstory in your mind for them that just kind of fits that, you know, you see this, you know, she's married to him. It appears, you know, out of circumstances, whether it's uh, for financial or if it was an arranged marriage or whatever it is. But clearly, you know, he 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 sees her as kind of his prize, but there's not really no love there or anything. She's a possession. Uh, she's loyal to him to the extent that she wouldn't. I, I don't believe she would cheat on him or anything, uh, but she's her own individual character enough that she's willing to go against what he would want her to do by giving uh, Hanny his, his, the, the code and, and sending him off because she doesn't trust him. He's totally motivated by money. And she's saying, you know, he's asking what they'll pay for a reward for the guy. Uh, so there's so much there that I, I think is true. Uh, and then I just keep coming back in my mind to the fact that, you know, we keep talking about the formula, but this is the infancy of the formula. He didn't take the formula and break it. He created the formula in a way that other people weren't really able to kind of do it the same way is the way I'm looking at it now. Mm-hmm. And if this movie was made in, you know, the year 2000 with, you know, 2000 technology as far as, you know, making it a, a, a slightly prettier color picture and better sound, uh, I think it would do just as well. Or it would play just as well as it does as a 1935 movie. I, I don't think, you know, I, I think it would have been successful in a movie theater at that time, despite the fact that at that point, the formula was established. So there's there's a lot to this that that just stands out to me as, as really just excellent, is the, the yeah. easiest way to say it. it is, even early on, when he's talking to the milkman and trying to get away... Right, Hanny tries to tell his story, and the milkman doesn't believe a word of it. But, you know, there's two spies out there. Hanny thinks his life is in danger if they catch him. So he says, okay, I'll tell you the truth now, and makes up a story about how he's slipping away from a married woman. And those guys out there, there's her husband and brother. And, you know, can you give me this as a disguise so I can get out in one piece? And the milkman's like, okay, yeah, you could have just said so. Here you go. Good luck, sir. <laughs> and I love that the fan was all in on that. He's like, sitting there, oh, wait. That's all in it? Oh, yeah, I'm in on that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. which, I, which I actually felt was, again, a, a flawed human element of the story. Like, I felt it was very believable, but I'm laughing that, like, yeah. And, and that's another layer where Hitchcock, again, adding reality, I think, to the film, which was that part was really great. He's making it, you know, he does it with, with that and he does it with uh, what's her name? Pamela, that the truth is unbelievable. They're not going to accept the truth. So he's got to make up the story to, to get believed. And, and, and it is that is a, a great aspect also. You, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, Paul McGuffin. I, I, I like that the most inconsequential and least believable part of the film is the is the thing that the 39 steps which let's just talk about that for a second 
that is so pulpy, right? This secret, sinister political group called the 39 Steps. We never really know what that means, right? Their, their plan is that they've hired, they've somehow gotten this super secret um, plan for like an aircraft engine or something to have someone with pretty much photographic memory, right? And their plan is we'll get him out and he'll be able to tell whichever government the plans. I hope Mr. Memory can draw, because I don't know if you guys have ever seen like plans for like aircraft engines or something. They're not something that you really verbally describe. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. And that's what's great. And, and another aspect of that that's great is you meet Mr. Memory at the beginning of the movie, and he's just a quirky, fun character that you forget about until the end of the movie. And then all of a sudden, he's he's part of the MacGuffin. But, but I, I like the denu- the kind of denouement of it all, right? You, you don't quite get it at the beginning, but it kind of makes sense. He, he's almost like a Batman villain. He has a compulsion to answer the question, right? So when he throws out, what is the 39 steps? The guy can't help himself. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was, that was a very cool element of it too. And again, I like the fact that you kind of forget about him, you know, you, you, in the beginning, it's like, Oh, I, I could see myself going, you know, being there and throwing out a question and seeing his answer. Uh, and anybody who hasn't watched this yet, that was the reference I made when I gave the, am I right, sir? Earlier in this episode, in this uh, show, uh, but he, he, you know, it, then when he comes back, it's like, oh, you know, that's what they're doing here. And, and it all just kind of ties together. And I, I do appreciate that, too. This I've talked sometimes in our James Bond uh, retrospective that a lot of times the elements that occur seem to be just because they're convenient for the script, you know, and as a James Bond fan, and I am a big James Bond fan, you have to be willing to just say, yeah, that happened, uh, you know, and just kind of go along with the ride rather than try and look for the logic that brought Bond to this particular place. In this movie, it doesn't play that game. It doesn't play fast and loose with that kind of aspect. Uh, there is a logic to what goes on. And and there is, you know, when at the end, when it all comes together, you say, that's why that happened. That's why this happened. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, one other aspect of it I wanted to mention was the, uh, and I, I don't want to spoil too much, but just the character of Smith who gets him involved in the first place, you have anticipation for where she's going to be in this film. And then that gets subverted as well. I'm, I'm only going to say that. Uh but that's to me that's that's one of the beautiful things about watching this is is almost you know what is it almost eighty years later uh almost ninety years later excuse me uh we we can look at this and see fresh elements that that we would not expect uh and that can't be easy to do, especially on a formula that people have copied many many times over the years and when we're looking at a movie in nineteen thirty five based on a novel. The the actual novel itself has no prominent female characters. Wow. The initial spy was an old male college friend, and there was no love interest on the way. He's running alone. So it's actually a very good novel. The first time I read it was because the uh, Project Gutenberg app that I have in Canada, it's not released by the Gutenberg people, but it pulls from their database. It analyzes reading patterns to a degree 
and it says the most compelling books. So there's a list of the books that people are most likely to read in one sitting, or they're reading huge chunks at a time. They're most likely to finish. They tend to binge it. And this is number three in the entire Project Gutenberg database. The, the mm. novel is very good, but it goes in a different direction. The 39 Steps does not have the same meaning. Uh, Mr. Memory does not exist in the book, nor do the female characters. So there's the Milkman Escape and there's Running Over the Scottish Moors, but it, there's a lot of divergence after that. I do recommend the novel. It is very good. It's actually the first of five novels starting this character. It starts as an innocent man drawn in and apparently he becomes a spy starting with the second book, which I haven't read yet. The Green Mantle is that sequel. I, I really want it to be the 40 steps. <laughs> but that's, well, that's, yeah, that, it's... We, Sean and I were talking in a, in a previous uh, episode how uh, all of these movies that we see that are, are adapted from novels, it's like, if it's a movie that we enjoy, it's, it's like, you know, I'd like to read that novel. And yet I know I never am going to. <laughs> it's just never going to happen, unfortunately. This one I might read, though. Um, I mean, and I'm generally saying that because um, I like the character so much and I like the idea of seeing, knowing that in the novels, he be actually becomes a spy i like spy thrillers and we don't get enough of them anymore um it's it's something where you know being able to get this kind of and what i think where this formula worked and it's something that you were referencing before paul and why i think sometimes it's not people don't get it right it's the details it's understanding what details to flesh out and what things to keep a mystery, because it's something in this conversation that everybody's mentioned organically kind of along the way. It's we don't fully know all like we don't know the backstory, like the whole story of the girl who got him into this to begin with. There's a mystery there still. There's a mystery to 39 steps. There's things that we don't know in this film that like just keep you talking and guessing and trying to flesh it out. Um, to your point, even with the husband and wife, it's their backstory. A lot of that stuff we're fleshing out ourselves as a viewer. And that's always intriguing to me when you give me enough that you've left me in a place now where, all right, now I'm thinking about this. And uh, I, I've got and this, there's something to debate afterwards. But you've got to give people enough that they get to that point. And that's something that this film did very, very well. And I don't think it's always done well. Sometimes it is a set, a thing where you're saying it earlier and I'm, I'm with you. I'm a huge Bond fan, but there are times in Bond films where it's just like, you gotta, okay, that happened. <laughs> and you just kind of move along. And this film didn't have that. And I think it's, it's to the, um, when you, when you're taking something that isn't attached to a franchise, it's going to help pull you through. You need to be able to do it throughout the story in the film where this is very well self-contained, but boy, it keeps me thinking afterwards. And when now that you got me intrigued with this book that like, hey, it's number three of the one that's saying that like, when you start reading this one, you're more than likely going to finish it based on what uh, the metrics are saying. Yeah, and, and finish it in one or two sittings. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that to me. I'm like, oh, I might be picking that one up because because there's more, and I, this did leave me wanting more in all of the right ways. I wanted to know answers to the mysteries. I wanted to see where the character went. Um, that's that's a success of a film 
Um, it, it's not about whether or not they actually give you a sequel or whether or not there's continuing stories. It's that they've got your interest in wanting that. And that's a successful suspense movie. Yeah. And the, the books are, or at least the first four books are public domain in the U.S. now. Because hmm. the U.S. is publication plus 90 some years. I forget how many. In Canada, they're all public domain because at the time they fell into public domain, it was Life Plus 50. They Starting this year, they did Life Plus 70 at the request of the U.S. government so that the releases line up a little bit. It's so like you guys have the first five or six Agatha Christie novels are now public domain in the U.S. They were supposed to fall into public domain in Canada in about four years. But when they fell into public domain in Canada, we were going to get her entire library right up to the 70s. Oh, wow. Now it's going to be more like 25 years. I'm, I'm going to do a 100% about face on my reading of this book right now. Based upon just the conversation that went on, I went into my uh, library database and I requested the book. It is only 149 pages long, so I think I can do it in one or two sittings. Uh, so I figured, you know, let me give this a shot. Yeah, there is also a an edition that has all five Richard Hannay novels in one cover, which... I think you hit on something, Sean. I, <clears throat> I think the strength of the whole plot, like any good thriller, is that its reliance on coincidence is believable. And when you deconstruct this film, really the only coincidence is that on this night he happened to go see that show in that music hall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everything else is perfectly logical in how everybody reacts once he, you know, once he makes that decision. But that's a decision that anybody can make. I mean, we were talking beforehand, you know, the marbles coming out. You know, some of us are seeing it tonight. Some of us are going, you know, um, other nights completely believable coincidence right so mm -hmm. um i i just and i'm i'm with both you and paul i kind of want to see the book now especially because a lot for it to be that highly rated and with a lot of the pieces that we've really focused on as being great moments in the film not being in the book i i kind of got to experience the book now and and to be fair, to, to put my laziness on the front, the fact that I know I can finish it pretty quickly is a factor. If I had to, if I if, if I had to commit to you know a 500 page book and say this is going to take me, you know, with the free time I dedicate to it, a couple of weeks to get it done, uh, I don't know that I'd be so quick to to jump on board. Yeah, it's not the stand. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. To see though, to actually the point of the page conversation on this one is, do you then seek out the other ones afterwards? Because that's the part I think most, what's most intriguing for me is reading the work that inspired this film. But I'm actually intrigued about the ones that come afterwards. So I'm going to be curious to see how far down the rabbit hole I go with this. Um, I definitely I know I'm going to read the film that inspired this. I'm going to be curious to see if I if I do read the rest. Well, another I, I like factor, the fact that those are out there. That's intriguing me. Yeah, I think I'm going to. I'm sorry. But another factor really quick is that just how accessible the storytelling is because this is storytelling from another era and sometimes when i read that type of thing i find that the methods of telling the story are different enough from current methods that it's a little off-putting to me mm -hmm. uh, 
And if that's the case, then I probably will just read the one and stop. Yeah, I I do find it, it's an easy read in that sense. I'm, I am I haven't read the sequels yet. I probably am going to continue on through at least Green Mantle. Uh, they didn't get specific, but reading when Hitchcock and Truffaut when they were doing the interview, but I've got it in print. Uh, he he was a, a huge fan of the author, and apparently that Green Mantle sequel was a fairly heavy influence on his original Man Who Knew Too Much, which hmm. we've already discussed. We enjoyed, so I'm. They didn't go into the details, so now I'm interested in reading Green Mantle just to say, well, what elements were pulled out as the influence? Sure. And if we keep going, maybe will we see some of these, some other elements in the John Duca novel showing up in Secret Agent or Saboteur or some of the other Hitchcock films? So yeah, this podcast might be why I pick up Green Mantle and read that, but I don't know why I haven't yet because I'm. I tried rereading uh, Thirty Nine Steps for this podcast, but I have been swamped this year including reading other novels for another podcast as you know ancillary materials for the Babylon 5 podcast we're launching in January that Paul joined us for in the first episode um yeah Blaine, but, Blaine, why why can't you find the time with doing several podcasts <laughs> uh having a full-time job having a two-year-old daughter and watching all these things why can't you find time to read more yeah you know I, I think it's because seven of the eight courses I'm teaching this semester I've never taught before so there's a little bit more planning than usual this year okay well we'll, we'll forgive you this time but next time we expect it to be read so I've, I've got a question for Sean in particular because I know he's a big Batman guy um, I'm always fascinated by older technology and sometimes seeing it like more physically in film or television is kind of has a bigger impact on me than like seeing it on um, a page. Um, what do you think of the auto gyro? Could you imagine Batman kind of tooling around in that with a machine gun kind of? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it actually was, what's intriguing is strangely, I like seeing that stuff so much more in black and white. Cause I feel like especially um, older tech and older films, and things like that. There's something about it. It just, it seems to retain a classic nature to it. Um, whereas I think, when you get more into the color years of film, um, some of those things maybe don't hold up quite as well. And that's not, I love, I love color film when we get into all of that as well, but um, there's something about the black and whites and the atmosphere and all this. Yeah. This could easily be a Batman set. (laughs) (laughs) The real question is, does the auto gyro we see here come equipped with shark repellent? (laughs) I think that's on the belt or it's under the coat. (laughs) I, I suspect that, you know, in 1935, seeing that on the screen would be the equivalent of seeing some sort of great CGI spaceship thing nowadays. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I always want to talk about the music in a movie. And, you know, this this is an era where they were not paying attention to the score kind of the way they do now. Although what I understand about Alfred Hitchcock is he paid attention to everything. <laughs> there was nothing that escaped his view. Uh, but what I saw on this on Wikipedia is basically he was not happy with Jesse Matthews, uh, who was the composer of some of the music that was actually used in the film and that he had a level of not happy before this was done, but used this music anyway, as well as some other stock things. I thought the music was almost inconsequential, to be honest with you. It didn't really add or take away from the film, but uh, I always like to, to discuss it when, in, you know, when we're going over things. So anybody have any thoughts on that? 
I would say the music was mediocre, which might actually make it the weakest aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. And before I forget, we always have to do our Where Was Alfred uh, sequence. So did did we all see him or, or not? Yep. Yeah, I, I had to actually, you know, watch closely or I would have missed him, to be honest. And apparently uh, what I saw afterwards is that it was him and the screenwriter that had their little walk by. Uh, and that was uh, Blaine. Why don't, that's usually your sequence. So I'm going to let you yeah, talk that, about it. Um, it's when they're making the escape at about the seven minute mark. They're leaving after the shots from the first Mr. Memory and they're going by in the background. Hitchcock tosses out a cigarette. So, yeah, about seven minutes in, Hitchcock is learning that, yeah, the earlier cameos are better because they're less distracting for those who are just watching for the cameos. Okay, and I I guess we're kind of closing in, but anybody have any final thoughts before we read it? Okay, so I think we've covered it, so I guess we'll start with our ratings. And I am all over the map on this one. Uh, If, excuse me. If we're watching this uh, purely from a, uh, you know, from an entertainment point of view, uh, I think it also depends on your willingness to watch black and white movies, which are made old, which are older. Uh, something that nobody in this particular conversation has any problem with, but I know other people do. Uh, and for them, I still couldn't rate it lower than a Jaws 3 because I do feel even on its surface level, it's entertaining. Uh, and th- so then the question is, once we get beyond that question, uh, is it a Jaws 2 or is it a Jaws? And I'm so tempted to go Jaws on this, but I do feel that Hitchcock cleaned up the uh, the formula, you know, as he went on, he developed it further he built on it so i'm going to go with an extremely high scraping jaws but a jaws too no um, i i was agreeing with you paul i'm in the same place with a really high jaws too i I know you said before that you know there's not a limited quantity of film under uh the the jaws um uh, umbrella um but i i just I know that Hitchcock has definitely done better as great as this um, film is. Um, And it's, if you say let's watch Hitchcock films, I think it would be um, one of the ones that I would want to watch like we did for this, um, uh, obviously, but it's not a film that kind of jumps to my, you know, every year, every couple of years, I need to watch this list. So for that reason, I think I'm going to give it a Jaws too. I I think I totally fall in the high Jaws 2 category on this one. And and the reason being, I, I, I agree with what Paul said earlier. It's funny, during watching the film, I actually thought at one point in time, I'm like, I might give us a Jaws 3. And where it was is that trudge that I mentioned. But such an essential part of the film. And, and that was that was a passing moment. But when you take a look at this whole thing put together, and one of the reasons why I think it has, for me, it has to be a high Jaws 2, is it does so many things so well and so uniquely in a way that I think other films just get it so wrong. 
Um, and it goes back to what I said about the details. I think the details and the set pieces, and when I say set pieces, I'm talking about not just the locations, but the individuals involved, the acting talent involved, and the storytelling. Um, this film just nails it. I, it's a it's a must see. I think if you're a Hitchcock fan and you're looking to explore Hitchcock films, that's why for me it's a high jaws too, because I think I would highly recommend it. I'm on that fence of there's a lot of Hitchcock films that I go back to over and over again. I don't know that this is quite there, which is what would put it in the jaws category for me. But I know like if, if we're sitting around and saying, Hey, I want to do a follow-up conversation about this, or somebody wants to do another podcast about this. I'm all in on watching it again. And I know I'm going to enjoy the experience of watching it again. Um, I would say though, for people who are asking me for a list of Hitchcock movies, this is one I would put on the list of you should see this. And um, it's one that I would say, do not miss it. It's, so it's in the short list. That's why, to me, High's Jaws 2 is you've got to at least see it. It's, But I agree with you on the rewatchability. I think that's going to be the piece where it's in Jaws where I'm like, I know I'm going to watch this over and over again. North by Northwest is already in that category for me of, like, I rewatched that over and over again. This is – it's skirting that line. I don't know. It would be interesting to see where this one goes, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with my High Jaws 2. Okay. Um, so that leaves me. And I mean, part of me really wants to give this a Jaws. But if I think of, you know, that Jaws rating as this is one where I will deliberately schedule a periodic rewatch. Yeah. Jaws 2 is watch it every time it's convenient. Uh, Jaws 3, if we think of, you know, Paul talking about the flick test so much as, you know, flicking through re- remote channels, it doesn't exist anymore. Like to me, Jaws 1 is you plan the rewatch. Jaws 2 is you stop and watch it when it comes up. Jaws 3 is, okay, let me see what else is there, and I might come back to this. And Jaws 4 is, no, once was enough. And in that context, I would say this is a 2. This is one I enjoy watching, and every time I watch it, but I rarely sit down and say, I feel like watching 39 Steps right now and go pull it out randomly. And I think some of that might be because Hitchcock's repertoire is so deep. Like as much as we've been raving about this the whole time, he's probably made ten films that are better. Yeah, I was so. going to try and explore that. <laughs> yeah. So along those lines, uh, what do you guys think about what we should do next? So this way, the listeners know what to see if they can watch between now and when mm-hmm. we do it. I would say just my gut says, because this is one of his better known black and whites, my instinct is to go maybe one of his lesser known colors. I I was just having the same thought, and I'm going to throw one out to you to see if you guys are are interested in doing it next. I mean, we're going to try and do everything, but um, one one that I'm not sure I've ever watched before, and I'm just I was just looking over his filmography. How about Marnie? Okay. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I'm open. I was actually going to throw out Torn Curtain, which is the one he did immediately after Marnie. Mm, I've, so I've seen Torn Curtain. I like the idea of putting okay. one on the list that I haven't seen yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we could do that. So it's, yeah, in that case, we'd be going with uh, Sean Connery rather than Paul Newman. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we will get we'll to Torn Curtain. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just a matter of how, how old I'm going to be by the time we do it. <laughs> 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 but for now, that's, you know, if anybody who's kind of interested in following Hitchcock with us, that'll be the next one that we're going to cover. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you guys for coming on and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. 
As did I, thank you. She's seen him, she's on her way down to the store. Bounce. of spies, collecting information on behalf of the Foreign Office of... <laughs> Job I ever tackled, and I don't want to throw it all away. It'll be quite all right. 
The first feature of the new engine is its greatly increased ratio of compression, represented by R minus 1 over R to the power of gamma, where R represents the ratio of compression and gamma. Seen in end elevation, the axis of the two line of cylinder, angle of 65 degrees. Dimensions of cylinders as follows. This device renders the engine completely silent. Am I right, sir? Quite right, O'Shea. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'm glad it's off my mind. At last. You, you, you've picked up a new Raging Bullets listener, Sean, and I definitely have thoughts on superhero fatigue, but I, ha- I haven't had a chance to, like, put my rant into words yet. <laughs> I'd love to hear it, because um, it's, a, it's a thing that's out there right now, and I think people are all over the place on it, rightfully so. I mean, in, mm-hmm. rightfully so in all cases. I, uh-huh. I went to see the Marvels today. Um, my wife and I are planning it this evening. And she's gotten so during the whole superhero craze, she didn't want to see superhero movies. Now, all of a sudden, she's gotten the bug. Um, little so late fatigue is fatigue is worn off or she. No, she didn't. She didn't have the fatigue before because she just wasn't into it. Now, all of a sudden, she it's clicked for her and she wants to see them at a time where I think it's <coughs> people in general in a very different place, at least. Based on box office. Yeah, well, honestly, I think you're talking about the pandemic. I think that's a big hit because we had everything, at least on the Marvel end, everything was building to a big finale in Avengers Endgame, and they hit it right before theaters got shut down. Right. So they, and they didn't have that next thing to grab and pull people back in. So the people who, I think some people who were getting tired of going, stayed through Endgame to finish the story, and they're going, okay, now I've got a satisfying conclusion, I'm out. Yeah, they have because, closer. Yeah, the number of movies they're coming out with in a year, it's, it's, I think it's like the 90s comics, people would be there for the events, they'd collect it all, and when they were out, they had to go cold turkey. I think it's also hard. In, so. I think it's also hard for people to <coughs> jump on points now to try and come back in, if you're even intrigued, because... I think uh, the superhero fatigue thing that's out there, I think, is where things start now when reviews kick off. So I think if you're even interested in jumping on board something right now, there's almost um, films aren't being evaluated as individual films anymore. It's all being like bundled into this one superhero like film thought process. Yeah, I'm going to like. One film I'm not even hearing anything about. Aquaman's coming out this year still. I'm not hearing a thing about that. I mean, I it's strange to see a, a Hollywood release that's coming that you know a lot of money went into, and it's crickets. I mean, I think DC is is keeping a, a low profile on everything that was done before the new wave is coming in. So oh, yeah. Aquaman is among that, and I think they're, they're well, shooting themselves in the foot as far as these individual movies go. Yeah, well, they, at least it's getting released. That's better than Batgirl. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, and there's <laughs> true. We, 
you, you have to factor the strikes into that somewhat <clears throat> as well. Who was going to be talking about it? The actors couldn't talk about it. The writers couldn't talk about it. Right. And so many directors are director writers, director actors that. Yeah. And, and most of the press conversations are related to. So how much of Amber Heard did you have to cut out because of <laughs> the, the, the box office poison she has become? Yeah, she, she's yeah, living proof I, that uh, pretty on the outside does not mean pretty on the inside. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So for for Marvel, Sean, message me after you see it and let me know if you think uh, the the average non big comic book fan would want to go to the theater to see it. Uh, well, we will sure. we will not be going tonight because we're going to see John Legend apparently. Oh, that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, it's we'll be I, home I, with the I, baby. I'll know but, about three songs. <laughs> yeah, my uh, apparently my. So my sister and her family are going and they're bringing my mom with us. And mom's like, if it's not Spider-Man, she has no idea. So and most you, of what so she knows about Spider-Man is because I was watching the 1967 cartoon growing up and it was just osmosis. So, so her opinion would be a it, very, that'll yeah. say a lot. Yeah, that'll, so uh, she liked Homecoming. Um, and she was lukewarm on Iron Man. And I think that's her entire exposure to the MCU. Hmm. She liked Homecoming. Okay, then that that. Or no, sorry. Uh, no way home. No way home is the one. The the crossover with the three Spider Men. She enjoyed it. So. I so just how, I, I, I I think the my problems as of late. I kind of have been. I I think you got to do something different than. Uh, the literal opposite of the hero as um, the villain, you know, um, mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll pick on Black Panther. And I mean, it was a great movie, but that was where I kind of started noticing it right to where I'm going to literally put Killmonger in a different color, Black Panther suit. And that's the yeah. villain. That's I, I, mm -hmm. I, I think people have gotten tired of that. Um, and it takes a big event to make a two and a half hour movie. I mean, when you think of most of the comics that we love, right? Craven's last hunt may make a movie. Infinity Gauntlet obviously made a movie. Um, Flash fights. Captain Cold disrupts three bank robberies. Doesn't make a movie, <laughs> even though it makes a great comic, it doesn't make a great movie. Right. Um, so I, and I, I think with Marvel in particular, um, I don't think anybody can point to what they're building to right now. And I think that I think that's what's hurting Marvel, mm -hmm. you, you know, by by you, you knew. In the beginning, you knew those films were building towards the Avengers. And once you got to the Avengers, you knew it was building to something. And there was little connective tissue that kind of led the dropped the breadcrumbs. I don't know what the breadcrumbs are right now. Yeah they, yeah, they were heading to Kang, but I think they're backing off because who knows how long Jonathan Majors is going to be a free man and ready to film. Yeah. But yeah, I'd, I'd say I've got, I think there's less superhero fatigue and more formula fatigue and mediocrity fatigue. Yeah. I, think I don't even have the formula fatigue. Exactly. I'm, I'm the mediocrity fatigue. You know, I, I feel like some of these movies, I, I'm okay with the formula, but, uh, you know, just give me, you know, give me something substantial. And, and I, I keep pointing to the Eternals as kind of my 
uh, my nadir because uh, I just thought it was boring. So I don't care about the formula. Just give me, just give me fun. Blue Beetle yeah. came out this summer, and it was actually a fun movie. I, uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a fun movie, and I think it got lost. I think it's where the superhero fatigue label bothers me. I think right now we've got this thing where if it's a superhero movie, it's immediately branded as superhero fatigue versus I think what we're saying right here that I think that there's a difference between movies that are mediocre and just okay. And the fact that there's in that mix, there's some films out there that have been decent. They've been worth seeing. Um, Blue Beetle was an example of one that I think needed to be seen on the big screen. Yes, you can watch it at home and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's a, it was a fun summer movie. And that that's a case of where I think they need to rethink and relearn um, marketing. I didn't want to go see Blue Beetle because, as I said before, I was like, okay, I'm seeing Jaime, and it looks like he's fighting an evil an evil member of the Reach, right? So once again, I'm back to literal duplicate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something about it that grabbed my son, and he begged me to go, and we went. And you're right, Sean. I would say. To date, Blue Beetle has been the best superhero movie this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So should we shift back to Hitchcock? 